one of my very first pitches, if not the first. Two of them happened the same day, and the first one was with the mayor of my hometown. And my wife had put the presentation materials together, and we sit down, and about five minutes into the pitch, going through these types of details, he goes, Michael, let me make sure I got this right. At no cost to the city, because you're going to pay for it, you're going to save us money because your electricity is less expensive than the utilities. And I get to stand on the front steps of City Hall with that photo man taking my picture, telling everybody I've gone green. <laughs> what am I missing? Hi, folks. I'm Connor Gaughan. Welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast that spotlights brilliant entrepreneurs whose innovative companies operate at the intersection of purpose, profit, and sustainability. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Chanin, the CEO of Cherry Street Energy, a company that supplies solar power to businesses and non-residential customers in its home state of Georgia and across the country. As listeners of the pod know by now, I'm a big believer in capitalism's ability to catalyze positive change. With financial motivators, the potential benefits are endless. And central to a thriving capitalist system is competition, which shifts the balance of power into the hands of consumers, who end up with choice when thinking about where to spend their money. The emergence of new challengers forces incumbent businesses to innovate in order to position themselves as the best option for the customer. This process can encourage companies to invest more heavily in technology, research, set better pricing models, design better corporate structures, and the like. Recent developments in state legislation across the country have encouraged competition in the energy sector, and Cherry Street is a groundbreaking example of how renewable power companies like solar can thrive in this type of environment. Most of us feel like we don't know much about where our power comes from, how it's priced, and the like. We often don't think the word choice matters when it comes to utilities. Recently, some communities are seeing solar energy as a part of a cleaner and potentially cheaper alternative because they allow the consumer to generate their own power, maybe even selling some of it back to the local grid. However, the high upfront cost of solar's installation and maintenance is often seen as a barrier to accessibility. In Georgia, this started to change in 2015 when the state passed the Solar Power Free Market Financing Act. This legislation allowed for third-party ownership of solar systems, meaning the entrepreneurs now create new companies that would oversee the design, installation, maintenance, and monitoring of power. As these firms would incur the upfront costs instead of the consumer, the total price of solar was reduced. And for the first time in state history, solar was now an effective player in the power sector, alongside traditional energy sources. Michael and Cherry Street were the first to capitalize on this opportunity. And the firm's unprecedented level of growth over the interceding years proves that solar can and will be a viable energy source complementing the grid and resulting in a more reliable and resilient domestic energy supply all around. Plus, its fair price point can benefit all consumers. So join Michael and I as we discuss how to align positive social impact with profit, how to collaborate with competitors, and how to build a 100-year company from scratch. Thank you for joining me today, Michael. I want to just start at the beginning. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from? I was born and raised in Macon, Georgia. I live in Atlanta now. As you were growing up, did you always envision staying in Atlanta and being an entrepreneur? No, I, I think certainly not. Being proximate to family has always really mattered, but no, I was fortunate growing up that I was always really encouraged to go see and do, experience the world, meet people, think global, act local was early in my life. Yeah. I remember my mom, when I was looking at colleges, was adamant, you can't 
not want something you'd never seen before. And so she was the first one to be like, why don't you actually go east of the Mississippi River for once in your life and see what you think, you know? <laughs> That's right. You have to only try it once, but then you can tell me you don't care for it. So where'd you go to school? I went to undergraduate at Northwestern in Evanston outside of Chicago. And I went to graduate school in Cambridge in the United Kingdom. Was this a precursor to where you end up or was it more of a generalist education? Absolutely. I mean, a, a liberal arts generalist, definitionally in college, I was an American studies major, which is a bit of a misnomer for an interdisciplinary liberal arts. I focused on English and history. And a little more specifically, I, I focused on race in the South and really inequality. If there was a consistent narrative arc to my life story, it was that understanding why perhaps inequality existed and maybe ways we could work as a community to make it better. And then college the aperture expanded a bit to look at global inequality, human rights. And I was really focused there in the economics of West Africa. And so I'd say even till today, that type of connectedness and working on big problems to try to make it a better place for those that come behind us has been a consistent theme. But no, I think at that point in time, I, I would tell you, I knew that I wanted to effectuate change in life. I just I didn't know what chair I wanted to end up in. So I, I don't think there was any chance I would have picked where I am today, but thrilled to have the opportunity that I do. Well, what do you think the 20-year-old American Studies student would say if he could see what you're doing now? I think that he would have appreciated the relevance of the moment and trying to find collective action. When I was in college, actually, I founded with some friends what's today called the Northwestern University Community on Human Rights. And at the time, it was the largest national student-organized conference focused on different critical human rights issues. The inaugural year was on HIV-AIDS, and this was really before the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. So I think today, 20-year-old Michael would have had a lot of resonance with where we find ourselves globally and locally on the need for this inevitable transition to renewable power because of the urgency that we have to address our impact on climate and the electrification of all things and how to solve that problem. So you are in this fascinating field of study, and then you graduate from graduate school and enter the workforce, and like me, chose the brutal path of finance. I'm, I'm curious how that process got you into the finance industry. Sure, <laughs> that's right. I was going to stay and get a PhD in graduate school, and my father suggested I should get a job. <laughs> uh, and so it was a bit of a shotgun path, but generally consultancy or investment banking were the types of conversations I was having. Sure. And I got a job at a firm, Goldman Sachs, working a group of theirs called the Special Situations Group, which my first day was the first time I'd seen a balance sheet. Uh, and so we go through and they are parceling out different assignments and they said, do you have any hobbies? And I said, I, I would like to have a hobby, but I don't just yet. But I read the newspaper every day. And they said, great, you'll be a media banker. And so what year was that? What was happening in the world around us? So this was the summer of 2007. The global financial crisis of that period of time was really starting. Uh, and our group was on the forefront of some of that understanding of where some of the market trends were going, ultimately leading to a lot of the major banking regulation and a lot of the major banking failures over the next five years. But that group was a group that invested in any number of different types of industries, businesses, business models 
but a lot of them that had core similarities. And that, that to me was a key learning of that point in time, especially for what would come next in my career. Yeah. And you spend 10 years or so in investment banking and finance. I'm curious what you would look back on and say that was a highlight of that period or maybe a fun story, not the ones we always hear. I mean, I would say the camaraderie and the people that were there were fantastic and still some of my closest friends and really the learning. I mean, my dad consistently over that period of time would come back to me and say, you are getting your PhD. You just might not get a degree at the end of this because it was a moment of major economic change. There was a lot of good learning. And I think that was a great understanding at, at that time, too. Of I'm a pragmatist. And it was a real learning of how the world worked. And I love that. And the people that I worked for, broadly speaking, were very, very good people, very involved in their communities that really did want to find ways to contribute. It was helpful and fun for me to learn how attainable that was. I, I think the exposure is one of the real privileges of that time because I learned of the possibility. I mean, most often when I have conversations and I'm fortunate enough to share with you some of this broader vision, right? You know, mine uh, is to do good and do well. But at that point in time, realizing how attainable it was and so often starting something is just getting started. I mean, you meet really impressive in the accomplishment of success, not by monetary accumulation, but of impacts in their community. I mean, you know, these are individuals that really worked hard to do these things. And so much of it is the timing was right. And there's some other pieces, but you decided that you could go. And having some of that confidence based off of that exposure was important for me to be able to take the next step. Yeah. And it's true. Just seeing it opens your eyes to the possibilities of doing it in ways that are underappreciated. Yeah. I want to jump to the origin story of Cherry Street and what was happening in 2015 in Georgia and how that opened your eyes to the potential business opportunity that laid ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So people have a vested interest in making things more complicated than they are. And after about a decade of working, writing investment memorandums, should we or should we not invest in this industry, in this business, you basically start to rewrite sentences again and again. And for what I was doing professionally, that phrase was long-term contracts with predictable and recurring cash flow streams. And Capital markets are essentially predicated oftentimes on that phrase in, say, the amount of capital and the cost of capital that people invest is largely tied to metrics around that. One piece that I was drawn to was this transition of our economy to the reduction or elimination of fossil fuels and its pure inevitability. And so in 2015 in Georgia, the law changed. It was called the Solar Power Free Market Financing Act of 2015. But the legislation change in Georgia was a reflection of something that was happening nationally. Uh, utilities were created generally in the United States in the 70s by the territorial acts. Uh, these territorial acts created utility monopolies in each of the states. And around 2000, states started recognizing that a primary inhibitor to the adoption of renewable energy were these laws. So they started changing them. And Georgia became the first state in the Southeast and in subsequent Southeastern states followed suit. But in 2015, the law changed. And I fortuitously uh, was at lunch, uh, September 18th of 2015. Uh, I tell the story often of my fried chicken Friday. I got set up on 
a blind date with another person in town that was an entrepreneur, liked thinking about new industries and markets. And I was telling him about some of my experience at Goldman Sachs and their special situations group and some of the energy companies that we'd invested in and how I thought it was so interesting. And he goes, well, that's fascinating. Did you hear about House Bill 57? A lawyer at my firm just worked on this. And I had not. (laughs) I went home and I read the law. And it was this epiphany moment for me. This is coming. And this is a amazing change. Markets have now become competitive in Georgia for electricity. And power companies will come to fill that void. And that's really when the business started. I mean, it was that weekend that I went home and registered the name of our company. I worked with my wife on setting up. She did all of our marketing materials. And it was a couple of weeks of pretty intensive research to see what had happened. Because when I was at Goldman, I was fortunate enough to work on two very specific, but ultimately pretty meaningful businesses in this sector. One that worked on residential electricity markets and one that worked on utility electricity markets. And so from the knowledge of those two businesses, I knew ultimately that this marketplace existed and could also appreciate at the time that it did not yet exist in Georgia. And it was, to me, essentially all of the opening fire that we needed to start to say, this is here. It has not yet been created. And this underlying sensation that I could do good and do well. I created liquidity in the capital markets. I made it a better place today. And so it felt like if I could pick my head up and find a business and business model predicated on those long-term contracts with predictable recurring cash flow streams, I would pick my head up and go after it. And that was it. And it's been this wonderful opportunity since somewhat of blinders. I think in time, you know, I'll pick my head up and see things that are not rooftops. But today, all I see are the, because this opportunity, the need for it to happen, the mission alignment of consistent change of both user adoption, and I think a broader recognition of the necessity of what we're working on. You certainly seized on an early trend. Inherent in that may be that you were ready to jump in as an entrepreneur. Was that something that you had thought previously about, or was that something that you were... (laughs) No, no. Uh, fixed costs are real. I kept my day job. This was nights and weekends for the first three years. So that's September of 2015, and I did not leave my day job until August of 2018, almost fully three years later. What was the catalyst that gave you the comfort to finally take the leap? Contracted revenue, user adoption, and the market opportunity. And I had practically said to my boss at the time when I got approval, if it ever feels like I'm spending more time on my nights and weekends than I am on my day job, I'll come to you because it still might not work out. I really enjoyed what I did as a day-to-day. And so I said, I I might come back and and need to. So I resigned actually in May and then worked over the next three months to transition. But it it really was customer adoption, which happened pretty quickly, honestly. But the rest of the build-out of a functioning operation, and everybody doesn't have that luxury, I, I fully appreciate. But I do think it was one of those elements of our overall success, because I really worked hard to think about, even from the very beginning, building a 20-year business or a 100-year business. Uh, And with that type of focus, it felt like we make different decisions. I mean, I still say often to the team, I am not six months smart. I hope to get six months smart, but making decisions that were long-term decisions and to have that type of viability felt like it needed to go slow to ultimately go fast, set all the right pieces up organizationally. You mentioned a couple of times that customer adoption was 
a key part of that comfort, that certainty that you needed. The industry itself is so unique in who the various layers of consumers are and their perception of the products and services that are offered or that they can purchase. And I'm, I want to hear a little bit about how you think about customers at various levels in the pyramid and how that affects how you guys plan and run your business. Yeah, I'm appreciative of the question and welcome the insight that you tease out of the discussion of the marketplace as it exists. Cherry Street Energy is a power company. We sell electricity to our customers who are municipalities, universities, schools, hospitals, commercial and industrial customers. As I think about the energy market, residences, consumers, individuals purchase electricity. Generally, they do so at their home. Wholesale buyers of electricity, the utilities, they also buy it. And then businesses, basically every other building. And that's who we address. All of the buildings that are out there that are not someone's home, not a major power plant. I mean, a central distribution, gas, coal, nuclear, or now even a huge solar field. So that entire commercial segment, the segment to which we sell electricity, to me, what has been so interesting about this customer adoption is most of the universe doesn't appreciate that they even have choice. I oftentimes use the end of prohibition as the example of what has happened. People could not purchase this thing, and now they could. The structural, the contractual agreement is a power purchase agreement. And this amendment to these state legislations, the territorial acts, allowed for third-party firms, private operators, to sell electricity directly to off-takers, to customers. So finding customers, educating them that it was possible to do so, legal. And then the second piece of this customer adoption and education, most because they didn't ever think about that they bought it or how they bought it, did not understand for what price they purchased this electricity. And so a second piece of this in building trust was helping our customer base understand what they paid for electricity and ways that perhaps they could pay less for electricity. So one of my very first pitches, if not the first, I mean, two of them happened the same day. And the first one was with the mayor of my hometown. And my wife had put the presentation materials together and we sit down and about five minutes into the pitch going through these types of details. He goes, Michael, let me make sure I got this right. At no cost to the city, because you're going to pay for it, you're going to save us money because your electricity is less expensive than the utilities. And I get to stand on the front steps of City Hall with that photo man taking my picture, telling everybody I've gone green. <laughs> what, what am I missing? And, you know, it's fortunately, it's one of these situations where it's like, I want to build in this community. I want to build businesses and jobs in this community. And this is the future. So the first private sale of electricity in Georgia was between Cherry Street Energy and Macon Bibb County at the sheriff's office on Riverside Drive and 3rd. And shortly after that, just inside of a year from starting the business, this contract is a 20-year agreement for Cherry Street to sell electricity to any of the 128 facilities in Macon Bibb County, 20 years from the date of the last installation or improvement to those systems. The city of Atlanta called shortly after the announcement goes out and said, we wanted to be the first one. We had followed the change of law. We were advocates for this occurring. And so, well, I'm sorry that you are not going to be first, but we would love to serve you as city of Atlanta's renewable power company. 
And concurrently, uh, the city of Atlanta had made a carbon goal that 100% of their consumption, they wanted to come from renewable power, ultimately by 2035. And Emory University made a similar commitment. So Emory became our third customer. So basically, our first meaningful three customers created a backlog of capacity. The North Star that we speak to are how many watts we have installed, a, a million watts is a megawatt. And so those three customers represented a meaningful portion of contracted capacity. And as a former banker, you would appreciate that oftentimes banks find comfort lending capital to businesses that had a meaningful amount of contracted revenue. Regardless of whether or not we were generating it yet, that, that's what the working capital was for. We needed debt capital, but that debt capital was going to be utilized to build infrastructure and so they were really wonderful counterparties, customers for us to start with. And then that backlog allowed us to start addressing a lot of the rest of the community. And then a number of others followed suit, other cities, universities, and then corporate customers. One particular stakeholder, utilities, they're critical players in every community, in every state. And I know Cherry Street has a unique relationship in, in a positive way with the local utilities. I'm curious if you talk about the importance of that relationship and how you navigate it, because it's certainly important, but perhaps also unorthodox to other businesses. I do think it's interesting to me that it is almost fully the inverse of how others have looked to address some of these considerations. We seek close collaboration and partnership. We want to work together with the key stakeholders in this, and it's going to be necessary to do so. In one of the early conversations after we had market viability, we knew that customers were going to sign up for this product. And I started having conversations with stakeholders that had other power companies. And someone from Macon introduced me to a gentleman called David Radcliffe just to have a conversation. He was someone who had run the Southern Company as its chairman and CEO prior to his retirement. It's the regional utility in our market. He had been the CEO of Georgia Power. And so he became a board member and a lead investor. And one of his early pieces of advice, Connor, was that the most important thing you can do to operate in this market is to work collaboratively with the utility and the folks on the line. I mean, the people that are delivering every day to have the customer as the center of their operations, of looking to serve in, in each of the communities that they provide power, which is their mission. And as you rightly point out, I mean, they do so in a lot of ways. They're on every little league board in the state. I mean, the people in the communities get involved. It's one of the great employers in the state. And so we worked hard from the beginning to find ways of collaborating. And the world is going to fundamentally change in how power delivery occurs. But it is in everyone's best interest that that is as seamless as possible with as little interruption, normal operations without price fluctuations that are meaningful to serve everyone. Because we, as a society, it's why we created the monopolies in the first place, view power as a right. Everyone should be able to have equal access to this. And it is a underpinning pillar of economic development. We have no interest in being antagonistic, knowing, though, that it is the most powerful political and economic organization in most territories that it operates, the incumbent utility, but oftentimes organizationally, it is not in its structural best interest to permit these type of market changes. 
And so figuring out how to do that, because they're a public company that has to serve their shareholders. And so there's some economic incentive conflict in some of how that decision-making occurs. And so balancing that is where having a good relationship matters because those are some of the learnings that are going to have to occur, find success in this inevitable transition. It seems like, especially over the last couple of years, the, the new economy, some real great trade wins behind it. We've got a lot of investment in public and private partnerships that are fueling growth particularly in Georgia. I mean, Georgia is the tip of the spear. So I wonder if you could talk about what Georgia, but also how you see these trends nationally. What's helping catalyze them? Where does that take us next? Yeah, absolutely. I think that you're correct uh, in suggesting, I mean, perhaps maybe one or two other states have more, but uh, we are capacity constrained. That is to say, as we move from a fossil fuel-based auto sector to an electricity-based sector, we do not produce enough electrons today, nor do we have the transmission and distribution system to support that influx. And this is what's been so interesting to me, and you do such a nice job in your different discussions across a lot of fields, is we think about how we can do well in some of these transitions as we think about the good that is to come. We need to come up with collaborative solutions for these major transitions. I believe it's to be the largest investment in an industry ever, these trillions of dollars that are going to go into electrification. As that occurs, we're going to have major investments in infrastructure that have not had in a century. I mean, as you know, most of the hydropower plants in the country were built in the Coolidge administration in the 20s. It is time for us to invest in these very, very big things. And doing those in Georgia right now, it's been this great opportunity what I, I hope for a bit of an apolitical collaborative approach to this is both inevitable, it is necessary, and it's imminent because we're starting to get pushback in different ways that, that I know you see as well. When I go to different communities across the state, none of them really view those conversations as, as productive. So oftentimes in forums like this, I, I do try to surface the need for collaboration across all sorts of different communities because these are not political problems. They are both technical problems as well as necessary climate-based problems. Let's stick on this do good, do well theme. Y'all have the trademark for it in the energy industry, which I love. So what does that mean to you as a, as a company or, and, and personally? That we need to answer both when we're thinking about taking action. Just doing good sometimes is necessary, but not sufficient. It is important to recognize that a thriving community is a community that has a vibrant economy, that has a marketplace of opportunity for people to participate in, and that it is okay to say it. I mean, one of the lessons I think that was helpful for me working in finance, is, as much as it was pilloried, and rightly, for a lot of different reasons, was that there was some honesty oftentimes that was involved in that. I mean, people were focused on one thing, and that was a return. But in doing so, it allowed for more clear communication. And so in all of the things that we did at Cherry Street, we could say, hey, are we doing good and doing well? But, you know, we get approached a lot to say, can you donate this system to this totally valid and worthwhile cause? And we do. I mean, we give donations in different ways. But generally, as a business model, it's not sustainable. And oftentimes we go back to those places and say, well, We'd love to work with you, and we think it's important to support and do this thing, but you pay your electricity bill today. So for us to try to build a business with you just taking away your electricity bill 
that doesn't seem like the necessary thing. So we needed to do good and do well. And also because and we're very incentive focused as a firm, how we try to drive corporate outcomes. And in doing so, a lot of those incentives are financial incentives. Everybody is an owner in our business, and we believe that we're building pretty meaningful capital for our shareholders and ourselves as we build this value. And then we hope that all of our people who are mission-focused and want to effectuate change and make it a better world can contribute to their communities through doing good. I think it's okay to hold ourselves to a higher standard and say we want to make it a better place. We want people to act with kindness and compassion and that we still probably can do so and do quite well. Yeah. Well, I would argue there are risks associated with trying to just do well and not do good, immeasurable risks. If you're thinking about kind of building a sustainable, profitable, long-term business, you've got to take a better point of view. If you have a hundred year view, you definitely take a different, you make a different decision than if you're only focused on this quarter's returns. At Tertia, give us a couple examples of some of the projects you're most proud of. We have a project on Ader neighborhood in Atlanta. Ader Court is the first low income housing on Atlanta's Beltline. And around the corner from there, we serve the Annie E. Casey Foundation at their facility called Pittsburgh Yards, which is a shared workspace for tradesmen. We can consistently demonstrate that there's a broad opportunity set to build our platform and sell competitively priced electricity, whether it's at Porsche Cars North America or at Adair Court, that this marketplace that we've created for competitively priced power can serve all. Power for all is how our team views what we're able to roll out. And one of the cool elements of this marketplace is that we've been able to create a platform where both can exist, where because if we're serving everyone, we're able to have that mix of risk ultimately because of how we balance whether or not some customers can pay revenue or or how much or how that works. Those types of things are balanceable if we can service everyone. And what's been really exciting to me and how we can do that is because we've got these great partners in our customers that have meaningful backlogs of facilities, and they know, we, we call it our Shine On program, they know that if they commit a lot of capacity, that it opens up the world to a lot of other people who might not get access to that. It was one of the key differentiators when we worked with institutions like Emory. The reason that they've got such willingness to commit to these bold goals is because it's just the nature of leadership because someone has to go first. In doing this, and we were able to get through that early adopter phase. And that's the other piece, both pragmatically and just realistically, to your point, our commitment to try to hold ourselves to that standard and making these long-term decisions allowed people to trust us and make those long-term commitments as well. Because our our contracts are 20 to 30 years. Um, So they're really choosing us for quite a long time. It's an interesting framework where a single contract is 20 years from the most recent install or you know update. How do you think about driving growth at Cherry Street? <laughs> David Radcliffe's second comment those early days was make sure to build authentic relationships across stakeholders at the utilities. The second was says I'm just not sure you can string them as fast as I can catch them. You know, that we've got this built environment that we have to address programmatically. Growth for us is this wonderful structural focus on how we can deliver faster and faster 
these distributed generation power plants. We install a thousand panels at a time on a recreation center or you know, a smaller subset on a fire station or, or things like this. And so building the processes to do that repeatedly and, and scalably. The other way that we think about growth is both from net new logos, I think is the sales lingo for how they would talk about adding a new client. Just last week, I was talking to this morning to someone telling them and reflecting eight years in. So I don't know that it should be a congratulatory statement, but some of our prospects are really getting it and how they message back to us when talking through that we're a power company. They're not choosing a solar installer for one building. They're choosing a power company. And so our programmatic rollout, this is a large airline company that has facilities all over the country, but a a big base of them here. They said, well, you know, we'll start with this dozen and then we've got these other markets or these other locations that we'll go to. And they don't want to manage dozens of different installers or vendors for this one discrete service. And also for us, it's a wonderful growth prospect because, you know, our backlog of contracted business and then it dwarfs our installed capacity today. And that same store sales growth, that expansion after the net new logo is a whole focus for our customer success managers. And a really exciting part of our growth is we think of where we are in that growth curve and this uh, user adoption and trajectory that we think has meaningful upside for how quickly this transition will occur because we start with these great customer partnerships on just the postage stamp of the cover of the envelope. We just start with a really small segment and then we know that we're going to expand to cover the whole opportunity. And so that for us is an exciting and prudent way to grow. And also it's helpful for our customer because they can learn how to internalize this process of changing the built environment, how we go through the evaluation of every building that they have or that they've accumulated over the last 100 years sometimes in the case of some cities. And so this is a a major infrastructure project, one building at a time which is a little bit of a different way of thinking about, but it's really from an outside in that we're building this. You know, as you think of the hub and spoke that might be for central distribution, this is distributed generation. We're, we're starting at the edge. One of the things I hear a lot of from folks in the new post-transition clean renewable economy, everyone's facing the same challenge or opportunity that comes with incredible growth, which is workforce development. And I'm curious how you guys are thinking about that. If you crack the code, what would you tell other people to do? (laughs) (laughs) I'm confident only in as much as we have not cracked the code. We often reference the reimagined renewable energy economy. We need to go help educate and train a meaningful number of skilled laborers to integrate this new asset class, these solar panels and the structural support that goes with building out this infrastructure. If every community has a plumber or a a framer for a house, every community needs someone that is skilled and talented, has a workforce, and it it just is nowhere close today uh, to having that type of coverage. To service this reimagined renewable energy economy, we, as a pillar in our Shine On program, have started a solar school and have started training disadvantaged and underserved communities where we have customers and uh, backlog to install because we hope that we can help train capable firms that can not only service us and building out for our customers, but expand into other markets as well or help grow their businesses. Training 
skilled labor to enter this market is going to be a critical element of its ultimate success across the country. You buried something in there that I want to pull out real quick. You speak about laborers, but then when you spoke about school, you used the word firms. I think that's really interesting. And I think it's probably intentional and important to give people a perspective of the potential opportunities that come with this workforce development movement. Would you give us a little bit of picture about that? Our Shine On program is to suggest that we need partners, firms in each of the communities where we are going to own and operate and maintain this infrastructure. Cherry Street Energy aspires to go not just from Atlanta to Augusta. We're going to go from Savannah to Seattle. But in order to do so, we are not a construction company. And there are going to be solar companies that manage skilled labor in every city in the country. And they're going to need to know the tools and the resources necessary to manage those operations. And some of this is very tactical. It is what is the right equipment? What is the right methodology to put these together? Oftentimes, there are not solar power plant manuals for distributed generation. If you said, hey, I want to install this at this building in Cherry Street Energy has written a manual. We need and we help train at our solar school someone that might have a drywall business or we're working with a firm in Atlanta and he had a commercial window tinting business or a woman in Savannah who had an energy savings business. You know, crews of labor, but that with an enormous opportunity to expand. And most often, Connor, we focus on disadvantaged and underserved business enterprises to do so. Squarely a do-good focus, but as you know, one of the primary elements that have kept out minority and disadvantaged businesses from a lot of the existing success in the marketplace is the access to initial capital to be able to take some of the risks that are necessary to get started in business, to go through the first sales process, to build a backlog, to invest in hiring more employees, to take the risk of that ongoing expense of managing and building human capital. We're able to take a lot of those risks away through these partnerships, because if we partner with a city as a customer and they've got dozens of projects to work on, we then in that community can help a firm expand into solar and they can be our system integrator and we'll train them how to do that. Certainly, if there are those out there that are listening that have adjacent businesses or even businesses that are separate but have access to talented, skilled labor who would be dedicated and committed to this necessary and meaningful transition to renewable power. We welcome working with them today in a nine-state southeastern footprint, helping to install and learning to install, and then in time, likely expanding their business, whether to go into residential markets or to help serve other firms. <laughs> Some of our uh, Shine On firms in, that we partner with are, are doing wonderfully and now have footprints of sending their crews nationally in, in markets that we've not been to yet, which is exciting to see people certainly expanding past just where we are today. Yeah. I'm curious what you're excited about next. What gets you up and going in the morning that you're most pumped for? <laughs> uh, it's not even, you know, it's barely spring training for where we are in this industries. I mean that both by way of customer adoption. So our customer expansion is likely to have just this meaningful progression in the coming near-term period and new technologies in the built environment for how we have 
distributed generation power plants. Most specifically, that's going to be the expansion of battery storage technologies and electric vehicle charging. As we think about the electrification of the auto fleet in the next decade and the incorporation of battery storage and battery management control systems into the built environment, there's going to be an enormous new marketplace of opportunity for the expansion of our services to our customers. Because today, we generally have one product, which is the sale of electricity through a solar panel. And in the future, the services that we offer in that product set is going to expand meaningfully. And I'm so excited about the advancement in those capabilities, those technologies and services, as well as our footprint, both from our customer footprint and our geographic footprint. Headlines every day are overwhelming and intimidating and often negative. And we talk about the crisis around the changing climate. And sometimes for many, it becomes overwhelming to believe that we can affect change. And so I'm curious how you keep that. You know, it's nice that these conversations often come full circle as we talk about where you come from and then here we are and and how do we think about it as we move forward. Acting locally and thinking globally has had such tangible benefit for our team. We're so fortunate to be able to see in the service to our customers and helping them achieve the goals that they have set out that we can sense both in the service to them as well as in the opportunity set that that is to come. If we go then globally and say, well, are we ultimately going to be able to change the curve of what could occur with anthropomorphic climate change? Are we going to be able to change this warming and save the world? The scientific elements of are we or are we going to, for better or worse, is a little further out and outside of our control in ways that I just don't know. But I do know that if we're going to try to do something today, the way that we're working on it is our best chance for impacting it and that we can help the community both get great jobs, right? So if we can then say we're organizing certainly to save the world from climate change and what's to come, but we've now wrapped some complexity around that to not just say, hey, we're going to save the world because of climate change and less carbon combustion, but we've now wrapped around the axle some other pieces, which make it more complicated. But as we talk about diversity and equity and inclusion, the largest investment in human history in this transition and the shared goal to do so equitably, we impact our communities in ways that are meaningful and that our team knows about. I would share with you in our headquarter town of Atlanta, the energy burden, which certainly you would have read and seen covered, more than half of low-income households pay more than 20% of gross income on their electricity bill. And this is something that's addressable. I oftentimes on our team encourage skepticism, but not cynicism. So it's okay to be skeptical about if what we're working on ultimately will be the best path, but it's also why it's nice being in an entrepreneurial environment and having a willingness to accept we might not be right. And we need to be prepared to accept that and then pivot or try to figure the best path that we all agree on for effectuating that change uh, or helping other people do good and contribute to the communities uh, where we are. And that's the perfect note to end this episode on. A huge thanks to Michael for the conversation on Cherry Street and all things solar power. If you're interested in learning more about what Cherry Street Energy is working on, visit their website at www.cherrystreetenergy.com. 
And don't forget to connect with me on LinkedIn to stay up to date on all things sustainable business and consensus and conversation. Plus, you can hit that follow or subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you're using to listen. You'll never miss another episode. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or you know the perfect person that we should have on, send us an email, right? To jeff at consensus-digital.com. That's G-E-O-F-F at consensus-digital.com. Consensus and Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by Will Gatchel and Jeff Rock, executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker, Greg Harrigal, and strategist Patrick Gallagher. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And we'll see you next week.